Let us pray together. Father, this is the cry of our hearts that we would behold You, that we would see You, not just with the intellect that You've created us with, but with, with our hearts, we would behold the beauty of the Lord seated on His throne in glorious power. Lord, You call us to respond. You call us to respond to that glory. And we pray that as we observe your glory in Psalm 115 this morning, that we would respond in faith and obedience and in trust. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Please turn with me to Psalm 115. Psalm 115. In the adult Bible class, we've been working through the Psalms trying to expand the horizons of our understanding of the unique, exquisite gift that they are for the people of God. And there is a reason that God's people have anchored themselves in the Psalter for thousands of years. It is a, a mountain peak of glorious poetic beauty, of artistry, that is worth our continual time spending Uh, a great deal of focus, seeing from its mountain peaks, observing the depths of how it describes the valleys of the human condition, and yet the glory and the way that it focuses us and points us to the finished work of Jesus Christ, much of which we've sung this morning. In just a moment, we are going to read through this psalm incrementally at each point in the the service, and we are going to alternate verse by verse, and I'll explain a little bit more of that later, all 18 verses. But make sure you have made your way to Psalm 115. The Battle of Agincourt is a famous battle in European history during the Hundred Years' War, made more popular by Shakespeare's play, Henry V., which centers on the events leading up and then following from this particular battle here. But it was a significant victory for the English over the French on October 25th, 1415. The English army was led by King Henry V, who achieved victory in spite of being dramatically outnumbered by his opponents. It was a shocking victory, quite honestly. And recognizing this victory that could only be attributed to God alone, it is recorded that the entire army was told to sing then Psalm 114 and 115 after the victory, kneeling to the words of non nobis domine, not to us, O Lord, not to us. Because in that particular instance, so history tells us, There was only one conclusion drawn by everyone on that field of battle. This is a work of God. The fact that we have been spared and that the enemy has been utterly destroyed. Fields of battle, like all trials in particular, have a way of clarifying reality, bringing what is most important front and center. And when the storms of life come in your life, Where do you turn? Where do you go? 
In what great hope will you trust? And if not God, are you really sure that the gods of this world are going to carry you through? Do you know that? That is what Psalm 115 brings front and center. Both the glory of God, but also the folly of trusting in anything that parades about as if it were God. Well, a bit of context before we jump in to this psalm together. Broadly speaking, Psalm 115 is situated at the front end of the last book of the Psalter. Again, if this is new information, think of the books of the 150 psalms as broken down into five big chapters. And Psalm 115 is toward the beginning of that last chapter, book number five. And it is, it's, it's pointing us towards a climactic point of praise and thanksgiving, pointing the reader and the, the singer of the Psalms toward a king and a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Psalm 115 is in the, the middle of the Egyptian Hallel Psalms, a collection of Psalms, Psalm 113 to 118. And this particular grouping of psalms was written as praises that would be sung in connection to the Passover meal and and other Hebrew festivals throughout the year in order to reflect upon God's redemption of his people from Egypt, particularly that bondage that they knew so well. And in the context of the Passover celebration, Psalms 113 and 114 typically would have been sung before the Passover meal. And Psalms 115 through 118 would have been sung afterwards. So it's very likely that these psalms were the very content of what Jesus and his disciples would have sung at the Last Supper, a Passover meal, before making their way to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus' subsequent arrest. Well, how fitting it was that our Lord would sing this psalm immediately following the Passover meal, presumably, highlighting that great act of national redemption, the exodus, in which God did the unthinkable and parted the waters and demonstrably destroyed the most elite army of the ancient world, all for the sake of His own glory. This points us to the glorious redemption that Christ was about to enact that would make that great event look like small potatoes. Narrowly speaking, as we situate ourselves with this particular psalm, Psalm 15 is a psalm of trust, a psalm of confidence. It's somewhere between a praise psalm and a prayer psalm. As one commentator writes, the psalm implies a situation of vulnerability and a need for Yahweh to bless but not a situation of desperate need. Some of you are familiar with some of the Psalms where there is just a lament cry that is acute. I mean, you can almost feel the emotion at work in the Psalm. And the, the, the situation under duress is, is placed front and center, and there's just a cry for God to help. Not so with this particular song, Psalm, although there is a problem at work. There's a concern that the psalmist is wanting to make sure we think about. The psalm begins with the psalmist trying to question, 
relaying the question raised time and time again, even today, by the nations, asking God's people, where is your God? Where is your God? You Christians, those that subscribe to this Yahweh, where is he? Can he account for himself? The psalm answers this question much like an apologetic, a a reasonable answer, first pointing out the emptiness of false worship through idols, rival gods, and then pointing us to the all-sufficiency of Yahweh himself. So our rough outline here this morning is for first consider verses 1 through 8, where we will see just the, the madness. And, and that's, that's too uh, kind of a word, quite honestly. The madness of idols into then the safety of trusting God. And lastly then, just delighting in the blessings that it is to praise God as His people. So here's what we'll do. If you have a copy of God's Word in front of you, it's going to work best if you're reading from the English Standard Version. Let us do what was so typical, the use of a responsorial, a back-and-forth, antiphonal uh, reading of the psalm. Uh, You and I will all read the first verse, so you take the odd numbers, I'll take the even numbers. Does that make sense? And we will go back and forth and read just verses 1 through 8, okay? So your odd numbers, I'm even. (laughs) All right, let us read this together. Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. We first see the the glory of God confessed here in in verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. This opening verse does not ask God for anything, nor does it raise the question right out of the gates. It simply ascribes glory to the Lord, not to humanity. Glory, this this consistent idea of the supreme weightiness and heaviness, the composite glory and majesty of God's royal majesty. Glory, not to us, O Lord. That is not fitting for humanity. That is only fitting for God alone. God's covenant love here, the the second half of verse 1 is highlighted as the reason for this this glory to be given. Yahweh's steadfast love and faithfulness. God's covenant love here, His hesed love, is paired with His faithfulness, emet. Uh, 
And this together implies the, the trustworthiness, the firmness, the constancy, the reliability of God's faithful love and His truth to us as His people. This attribution of God's glory serves as the opening line of praise here, setting the table for the contrast that is about to come. We see then in verses 2 and, two and 3, beginning here in verse 2, the challenge of the nations. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Here the psalmist is relaying the quotation of the nations saying this about God's people. Why? Where? Where? Where is their God? He relays this question raised by unbelieving nations. We hear the echo of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? This question is where, of where God is is not a good faith question of sincere interest. No, this is more in the tone of mockery. And the psalmist responds to it. It's as if they are saying, if God's really on your side, I mean, shouldn't your life be way better than what I see? And depending on where you drop down in Israel's history, there were some incredible low points, right? Where easily the scorn and the mockery of the nations seeing God's covenant people would have caused them to say, <laughs> sure, sure, that God they claimed was, was supreme. Well, look at them now. Look where it got them. Well, we hear these questions today, don't we? From those that do not follow the Lord. Where was God when my son or daughter passed away? Where was God when my loved one took their own life? Where was God when I suffered tremendously at the hands of that evil, wicked person for years? Where was God? Where was God? Where is God? As I deal with this life-threatening disease, these sorts of questions, they still resonate today. So Christian, the world asks today as loud as ever, where is your God? The answer is given in verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. This does not mean that God is not everywhere, for He is omnipresent. We believe that, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and that the, the highest heavens cannot contain Him, and that even as Psalm 113 highlights just two psalms before, that He reigns in His throne, and yet He is present with the beggar and the ash heap, as well as the, the barren woman longing for children. He is in all places, present everywhere for the sake of His name. But the heavens in this context represents God's sovereign throne-like context in which He reigns supreme. He is seated in the heavenlies, and He does all that He pleases. His supreme pleasure. We exist for that very purpose, Scripture tells us, for the pleasure of God. That is why all things have been created, for the glory and pleasure of the Creator. Now you might think, really? 
God does all things for his own pleasure? That doesn't sit right with me. How pompous, how proud, how self-serving we might think, right? God does whatever he pleases? I thought he was selfless. I thought that's what made him awesome. Well, these categories, these way, this way of thinking that we naturally may respond to is a creaturely way of perceiving this, right? When you are the Lord of glory and the creator of all, all things belong to you. And if you design the world to function properly when it worships you alone, it's supremely loving to convey that instruction manual for everyone, including the nations that shake their hands at you. That is the most loving thing he could possibly do if indeed he created all things to relate to him and to be rightly ordered as the world has submitted to his reign and rule. So it is, it is not a pompous, proud, self-serving, in a negative sense sort of idea. This is supreme grace from God. That should say two and three, just for sake of clarity. We see then, though, the truth about idols is laid forth before us. Their idols, silver and gold, work of human hands, mouths, eyes, uh, ears, noses, hands, feet, all of these descriptions, not a sound in their throat. I mean, this is <laughs> ineffectiveness at best, right? But what's the psalmist doing here? Why does, he, why does he take us to the heavenlies, the glory of God, praising God for who he is, and then go right to idols? What's the connection here? Why bring up idols after speaking about the sovereign pleasure of God? Because he's responding with a counterpunch. Where is my God, you're asking, in times of trouble? Well, would you mind for a second if I asked you the same question? Let's just make sure that we've exhausted our options here first, the psalmist might be saying. Now, before you, you know, throw down on, on the God that I worship, can we take a look at yours for a moment? Is the essence of what he's saying. Let's look at the alternatives. You make your gods from silver and gold but they are lifeless, inanimate, dead, without a single sensation. As good as dead. These verses remind us of the voice of Moses. First in the, the Ten Commandments, as the, 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 they open with this very concept that you shall not worship any other god nor make any carved image in his likeness. We hear Moses' voice in Deuteronomy 4, 28, where he says, it is, Idols are the work of human hands. They neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. Over and over again throughout the Old Testament, the prophets challenge the matter of idol worship as a perpetual problem, especially for God's people. But the natural proclivity of the heart without the worship of God. We see in Habakkuk, Chapter 2, what prophet is an idol when its maker has carved it, or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols 
Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake, to a mute stone, arise. And this is your teacher? (laughs) Yes. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. But the Lord, by contrast, he is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In the ancient world, as you situate Habakkuk's words right there, there there would have been a a ceremony, a ritual, as it were, in which the the, the idol-making process would have have been uh, ceremoniously brought and placed inside this ancient temple. And through different sacrifices and ceremonies, it was believed that the essence of the God would then fill this little idol and that his presence would then have power to do whatever he was, was to do for cursing or blessing. And time and again, the consistent point the prophets make of this is folly. This is craziness. It's madness. Not only is idol worship false for Israel, but the very act is delusional to its core. Hear the prophet Jeremiah's words. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. It's the very act of making these idols that that earns him this, this deserved shame. For his images are false. There's no breath in them. They are, work, they are worthless, a work of delusion. Delusion. And more examples of this, just uh, the, the scriptures are replete. I mean, think in terms of the golden calf could not protect itself from being ground into powder, right? The images of Baal and Asherah could not defend themselves against Gideon. The images of Dagon fell in a heap of rubble before the ark of Yahweh. And the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, with all their pageantry and with all their efforts to try to call down fire and to prove that Baal was the true God, they were lifeless before Yahweh, before Elijah. The New Testament only continues to amplify the real and present danger of idolatry in some ways internalizing and intensifying the concept. The context of food being offered of idols that the Apostle Paul speaks to in 1 Corinthians 8. Paul says, We know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods, for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Other well-known texts in the New Testament draw out more aspects, but but highlighting idolatry as being the, the connective tissue to these concepts. Galatians 4, idolatry is seen as inherently enslaving. Romans chapter 1, idolatry is equated with thankless hearts and foolish minds. In both Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, idolatry is seen as sexual immorality and impurity and evil desires and covetousness, which is idolatry, Paul says in both of those contexts. So a summary of idols under both the Old and New Testaments, we might say, idols have no real existence. Idols are enslaving, 
even addictive. Idols never satisfy the human heart. Never. They only leave us wanting more, calling for more. Idols are at work today beneath every impulse to dethrone God from His rightful place. We never live in a vacuum of worship where we can either sort of be in a, you know, it's either worshiping God, really doing the bad stuff, worshiping idols, and then there's kind of the neutral zone where it's like most of us hang out, we're just not sure. The Bible knows no neutral zone. No, we cannot stop worshiping. It is woven within the fabric of our identity of being worshiping creatures. And idols, lastly, they, f- they are formative. They want to form us into their likeness. We might say, you become what you worship. You become like what you worship. Whether for glory or for ruin, you become like what you worship. Like many laws... And we, we read this in verse, verse, nine, verse 8, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So like many laws under the old covenant that had a reciprocal consequence to them, you know, if you shed man's blood by, by blood, you, sh- you know, your own blood's going to be shed, and this sort of aspect of if you do this, get ready for it to come back on your head. There's a similar idea at work here where those who give themselves wholeheartedly to idols, guess what? You're going to become just like them. They are a great picture of your fate. And in fact, in many cases, the present day status of the lifeless, dead, spiritual life within you. So what are you worshiping in your life today? We have to ask that question. What are you worshiping? You probably don't think of it in those terms a lot. But there are certain ways to to draw that out. And I wonder if the, the gods of our culture have had their enslaving effect upon your whole heart. Have they molded you into their likeness? To this point, I I recently heard a a pastor ask his congregation this question. He said, is your supreme delight and greatest happiness, so what makes you most satisfied? Something that God has forbidden or has not chosen to give you at this time? Consider that for a moment. Is your supreme delight and greatest happiness, so what makes you most satisfied in life? Is it something that God has forbidden or has not chosen to give you at this time? However you answer that, and I plead with you to answer it honestly in your heart of hearts, you're very close to identifying the animating, perhaps, idolatrous struggles within your own soul. You know what you truly worship by what you love. You are what you love, as St. Augustine wrote. Martin Luther also wrote, he said, whatever the heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. 
Whatever the heart clings to and confides in, there's your God. Like most modern individuals, the exaltation of the self, us, has risen to godlike status in our day. I wonder, are, are you at the center of your universe? Is your self-care, your bucket list, your ambitions in life, your commitment to arranging your entire schedule to serve your desires and goals and objectives, your top priority, everything else, get out of the way? If so, perhaps this is an indication of who it is that you truly worship above all else, the self. Even though our hearts are perpetual idol factories, as the reformer John Calvin so famously said, we are perpetually interested in one idol after another. What joy it is to know that our idolatrous hearts can know true safety true deliverance. How does the psalmist envision such a deliverance? We see this in the second point, the safety of trusting God. The safety of trusting God. Let's read together all three of these verses, just one after another, 9, 10, and 11, aloud now. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. So these verses serve as the central refrain for the entire psalm. So it's as if, it's as if how, the, how the psalm begins and ends forms a, a, a point that will circle back to in a moment, but the whole psalm is driving us to a point, and this is it. Trust in the Lord. And the repetition here is unmistakable, is it not? It's very intentional. Trust the Lord. Everyone in the original audience is probably captured here. Lay Israelites. O Israel, priests, the house of Aaron, and you who fear the Lord. All God fears, no matter how you grew up, where you came from, if you have bowed the knee and been part of God's covenant community of Israel, if you fear the Lord, you're in. Trust Him. Trust Yahweh. The contrast to idols made by human hands is the call to trust a God who forms every human soul in His image and likeness. I mean, can you rest for help and strength and might in a God who cannot speak or see or hear, smell, feel, or walk? I mean, can you truly rest in that? Is that going to save you? No. We know this, don't we? Idols can never save. Not too long ago, probably over the last year or so, I was speaking with a friend of mine that lives out of state down in Florida, and he was telling me about a fishing excursion that he went on. So right, right out of the gates, I'm, I'm checked out. Sorry for some of you fishermen. Especially this, though. I'll do stuff near, near land. But he said we went out, you know, eight, ten miles, and 
that I was like, all right, now I'm interested because I, first of all, I will never be in that situation. And, but, but what he then told me was that, that uh, this was, I don't even remember what they were trying to, to catch, but it was something big and scary, no doubt. And the, a storm rose up of significant proportion, and their little boat was not doing so well. And there was a very real sense that, and this is in the middle of the night, there's a very real sense that I don't know if we're going to make it back. So he's telling me that the, the guy who took him out there uh, just had his head buried over the console, wasn't even looking around because there were just sheets of rain just pelting uh, them and the boat, and, and he was praying like he'd never prayed before, <laughs> thinking, this is it, this is probably how it's going to end. And as he was uh, describing the situation, you know, my, my imagination just sees it all. Now, Put yourself in that situation for a minute. And imagine my friend says, you know, he's, he's, he's thinking, he's thinking, he says, ah, oh, how could I have forgotten? And he pulls out, out of his pocket, a little piece of carved wood that he had made the day before and painted it real carefully under a microscope, and it was just looking real nice. And he goes up to the guy who's just buried over the console trying to get him back to shore. He just taps him. He's like, hey, I'm not sure if you're into this kind of thing, but I do have this. You know, here's, here's, here's a little piece of wood here. I painted it myself. I'm thinking maybe if we pray to it and, you know, it might have a, an effect to change our circumstances. <laughs> you know, we should see that and be like, no, that's crazy. That's insane. Why would you do that? But is it any different? Think about what we're turning away from when we turn to idols. The God of heaven who does all that he pleases? <laughs> And we turn to, to ridiculous little idols and things that we think can care for our hearts and shelter us in the midst of storm better than the God of heaven. That is madness. That is the definition of insanity. They cannot save. They are without any life at all. We see then the transition into these last few verses here as the blessing of praising God is brought out here. Let's follow the pattern that we've been in. Well, I should say the pattern that we began this psalm with. And let's read the... I want us to end on 18. So let's all start together. <laughs> okay, we're totally breaking the pattern, actually. Uh, 12 through 18, we'll, we'll read together... The, you will read the even numbers, I will read the odd numbers. All right, beginning in verse 12. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth has been given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. So we see here in verses 12 through 15, the Lord remembers and he blesses. Unlike the false gods, the Lord remembers his own, and he does so in order to bless, 
from the smallest to the greatest. So is this kind of blessing just another way of saying, well, God will just give me all the stuff that I want if I just pray to Him more and kind of go through those religious uh, motions? It, that's, that's, I hear Christians talk and they, they put up little, you know, uh, plaques and stuff that talk about being blessed and all this, and uh, maybe that I just need to do that, and God will, God will give me everything I want. I'll try that. No. The blessing of the Lord is God invoking His divine favor upon His children so they might know the joys of living life governed by Him and in communion with Him. This is the blessing of God. Verse 14 understands the increase of children to be a blessing from the Lord that enhances our gratitude before the Lord. Just as Psalm 113, which we already referenced two psalms earlier, speaks of God's blessing toward the barren woman, filling her up with, by giving her a home and making her a joyous mother of children. Well, so too is the joy that comes from fulfilling God's ongoing call to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth Today is Mother's Day. We know that well. And while there are some who long to know the joys of that calling and that privilege, it can easily become one of the idols of our age that we must not covet from others, seeing that blessing of the Lord. God calls even in suffering to, be, to find in Him your satisfaction, nor to ask relationships with others to fill our hearts in only ways that God can. Nevertheless, it will always be one of the sweet blessings from the Lord. We then see in verses 16 through 18, the joyous responsibility of praise. Verses 15 and 16 highlight God as creator of heaven and earth. Again, circling back to ideas he began the psalm with, reminding us in verse 3, we, need, uh, we, we read again in this 16th verse that the heavens are the Lord's heavens, and from those heavens he reigns and does all that he pleases. Verse 16 refers to the earth as having been given to the children of man. What does that mean? Does that mean it's no longer the Lord's? Is this a perfect proof text for the deistic... Uh, heresy, that God just kind of, he starts things, but then he's, here you go, have fun with it, I'm going to not be there. No, no, that's not at all. This is not to say God has retreated to the heavens, and he's no longer an imminent God. Mankind is still tasked to cultivate the world that God has made, placed as stewards and caretakers of it. Verse 17 notes that the dead do not praise the Lord nor do any who go down in silence. Now, this seems to be a clear reference to verse 8, highlighting the deadness of the idols. Those who make them become like them. They are lifeless and dead. This is the fate, similarly speaking, psalmist loops us back to, of all who trust in idols and forsake Yahweh. The final verse parallels and echoes verse 1 giving glory to the name of God for His steadfast love and for, from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. So in contrast to the dead, the blessing of the Lord gives life like nothing else.
Idol worship collapses the beauty of God's world. It breaks it. It's as if vibrant colors you once saw are reduced to black and white. The continual lust for more singes our spiritual taste buds and sears our spiritual capacities to view God's world, to no longer see it as signposts to His glory. But oh, the joy. Remember, it's as if you're in a foreign land and someone's given you a taste of home. They say, don't forget that favorite recipe. Do you remember it? Can you taste it? The joy of the Lord, it's better. It gives life. The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. So he, alongside the Father and the Spirit, reigned in Trinitarian unity in the heavens, doing all that they please. But God, but Jesus did not stay there. Jim Hamilton writes, he says, The living God came in flesh as a man with eyes that see, ears that hear, a mouth that spoke, hands that felt, feet that walked, Those who behold the glory of God in the face of Christ are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Are you seeing the connection? Same idea. You become like what you worship. We become what we worship. If we worship dead idols, we become like them. And the dead do not praise Yahweh. But if we worship God in Christ... By the power of the Spirit, we are renewed and transformed and become what we were created to be in the beginning. Jesus, friends, crushes idols. He does. He proves that through his life, death, and resurrection, that he not only existed but continues to exist, seated in glory at the Father's right hand, in His resurrected body, where He hears our prayers, where He sympathizes with our weaknesses, and He promises to return, where He will put an end to idolatry forever. May God help us long for that day. And in the meantime, we need to expose the false worship within our own hearts on the regular calling one another even to trust the Lord. Small and great within any Christian church, children, adults, single, married, old, and young, we know trials will come. Some of us are in the worst of them right now. Your heart is the same as the person sitting next to you, though. We are all inclined to exalt ourselves. We are all inclined to worship idols. And to forget the Lord, even though He, as the text says, remembers us. As we learn in Hebrews, do not neglect the grace of gathered worship so we might stir one another up to love and good deeds. I wonder if you do not know the Lord, as we've been speaking in terms primarily to Christians this morning. If you would not 
fit that category, and you know that, I wonder if you might consider doing the hard thing with the Lord's help, but calling yourself out on the delusional nature of worshiping anything other than Him. It takes a lot of humility. It takes a lot of forsaking things that have been well-worn comforts, perhaps. But recognizing that those were always intended to be gifts from the Lord, not objects of supreme worship. In fact, we break every good thing when we ask it to do what it was never intended to do, be that a person, a thing, a substance, an activity, anything. Believers, pray for insight into your own soul. Speak with fellow Christians about your life. Presume that there are areas that the Lord still needs to transform you by His grace as you, through others, see more of the beauty and glory of Jesus. Remain open to having those blind spots uncovered by His grace, sometimes through very humbling means. In his book on idolatry called Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller writes this very helpful statement. He says, idolatry is not just a failure to obey God. It is a setting of the whole heart on something besides God. This cannot be remedied only by repenting that you have an idol or by using willpower to try to live differently. Setting our minds on things above means appreciation and rejoicing and resting in what Jesus has done for you. It entails joyful worship. Jesus must become more beautiful to your imagination and more attractive to your heart than your idol. And that is what will replace your counterfeit gods. If you uproot an idol and fail to plant the love of Christ in its place, the idol will grow back. Rejoicing and repentance must go together. And I think both of these concepts are seen so transparently in the 115th Psalm. And may this be the cry of our hearts to see just how insufficient, draining, and even maddening it is to worship anything other than the God who is in the heavens, who does all that He pleases. So Christians, trust in the Lord. He is your help. He is your shelter like nothing else. Let's pray. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Your steadfast love and faithfulness has been so evident in our lives, even in the life of this assembly. But we are not in your very presence yet, Lord. We are not escaping the, the, the onslaught of temptation. And we know that beneath every, every work of the flesh and every sinful action and thought, there is an idol seeking to work its power in us. Lord, as we even just reflected upon during the offertory, would we, by your grace, cast down those empty, wicked idols and in their place see the transforming love of Jesus Christ who from His exalted throne rules and reigns for us. 
Thank you that you remember us as your people. You shelter us. You help us. May we trust you. In Christ we pray. Amen.